electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's Essential Morning Show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod, hedge fund manager and China hawk Kyle Bass on phase one of a U.S.-China trade deal. I think this just buys both sides time, and they can both bill it as a win. Former White House insider Steve Bannon weighs in on China and on the impeachment process. The jury is not the Senate. The jury is the American people in the audience is the world. Two economic roads diverged in America, and the difference is grave for the working class, says Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Nick Kristof. America is now not divided between, like, West, East, South, North. It's thriving America and left-behind America. Those stories, plus the president's evolving relationship with Apple CEO Tim Cook, and peas, yellow peas. Don't eat the snow. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. It's Wednesday, January 15th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. President Trump is ripping Apple. We're talking yes. a little bit of Apple. I've said all along, I've said all along, Apple's got to get on board here. <laughs> with the, yeah. Switching sides, are we? No, I'm no. really not. I did disagree you, with that see, completely. Did, did you see the, the journals op ed, which I thought was really interesting? Versus bar, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not okay. Apple's responsibility to keep us all safe from, from t- I mean, we've got, that's no, it's, why it's we it's have. It's Apple's responsibility to cooperate when there are issues there. And what, what, what the journal's editorial raised to me is the question of how much they've been cooperating. Barr said they hadn't really cooperated at all. It does sound like the company has been pretty responsive to some of the requests that have come in. They don't want to create an encryption key that will allow any government to get into any uh, phone at any point to have that pressure there. I do think they should cooperate in cases like this. I hope they're doing that behind the scenes. Maybe it requires uh, the the law getting involved, the courts getting involved on some of these issues. I do want to see them cooperate on some of these issues, but I can understand the broader issue of not wanting to do an encryption key. And the journal's point is, in the meantime, Apple shouldn't be seen as a public enemy. No. And that's totally valid. So... Where do we come to? So, so Barr is is rabidly wants cooperation, right? Barr wants so, cooperation, but I think that Barr wants not just cooperation on this issue. He wants to this create is a about precedence. a much larger issue for him. He wants he wants to establish and create law for life, effectively, that would allow him to go back to the apples of the world in the future and be able to get this information. So it's, a, it's about establishing the precedent, and that's what Tim Cook doesn't want. Let's just show you very quickly what the president did tweet late yesterday. He called out Apple, tweeting, we are helping Apple all of the time on trade and so many other issues, and yet they refuse to unlock phones used by killers, drug dealers, and other violent criminal elements. They will have to step up to the plate and help our great country now make America great again. That tweet was in reference to the tiff between Apple and the Department of Justice over unlocking iPhones used by a shooter in Pensacola last month. It's part of a terrorism investigation. 
Apple has said that it turned over all information it had, but it would not build a backdoor or specialized software to give law enforcement elevated access to its products. This is kind of a key to get in the back door. Apple's point in the past, because remember, this came up in December of 2015 in the San Bernardino shootings that were there. Apple's point has been if it created a key, it wouldn't be just the United States government that could demand that key, but uh, governments like China and Apple's other places an American where they might company, be using it for. But it's an independent company. Yeah. Unless we want, like... America's Huawei. Right. I mean, you help the government where you can, I, I guess, but yeah. you're not an arm of the security apparatus of the United States. Exactly. And the great complication. Unless you want a Huawei, which we don't. I mean, you know, look how we talk about Huawei. But the great complication for Tim Cook now, right, is that he has done this remarkable job so far of threading this needle with and uh, relationship with the president, and. You know, they spent time on the phone together. They're in, uh, but they did that press conference right. together. For the time that he went I down to Austin to the... Right, he's I in don't... the ad with the president. Right. I think it's very difficult to now be on the other end of the tweet. This sounds like a, like a you know, little Thanksgiving dinner squabble. This doesn't sound like anything that's going to cause people not to show up for, you know, for years at oh. family functions. Oh. This, is, this, this is not, not to big enough. That... Do they have enough... Self-interest. This is happening at the same time that we are signing this trade agreement today. So the tensions between China and the United States are tamping down, are damping down, being damped down too. So that's good news for Apple. Beyond Meat signing a multi-year deal to lock in supplies of yellow pea protein. That's the main ingredient. EEA, Becky. That's the main ingredient in plant-based burgers and sausages. In terms of that deal with the French company Roquette. Haven't been disclosed, but it expands an existing 10-year partnership. Um, Beyond Meat was briefly halted for volatility during yesterday's session. Now you need someone should have. So now you assume that the I, way I it's know, written in the project. I just is think correct? some. I just think some. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just think when they named those peas, someone you know just should have thought about you know maybe there's some other way of calling it. Yellow pea protein. Um, don't eat the snow. Uh, but that's what they're putting, by the way, in a lot of protein bars now. It's all... Yellow pea? Oh. <laughs> Andrew doesn't want to play. Just really... Um, please, please play with us. Protein bars. you got a big stash. You I have understand. cooties. <laughs> you got a big stash. Do I need a stash? Of, of the protein bars for, oh, for, I Davos. Have for Davos. I know. I, I, I know. We starve. We freeze. It's we... okay. I'm, I'm all good. I've got, I've got kind protein bars I'm taking with me. I have cashews I'm bringing, and I have dried... Dried... <laughs> It's like squirrels for the winter. It's sad. (laughs) Wasn't there a time in your life when you thought 6 a.m. was early? Yeah, there was a time in my life when I started working when I thought 10 a.m. was early. For an alarm? 10 a.m.? late. When I was a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, sometimes I'd be late. I couldn't make it on time 10 a.m. I'm with Becky. (laughs) That's how, in the old print world... You worked late. You worked into into the evenings, but you didn't get there early. You were like a lawyer. You'd show up at 10. Right. But I can remember... If you were lucky trying to get up to go skiing, like when I was in college. Something you really wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. But at 6 a.m., it's like, I, can't, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if I can. And then 6 a.m. looks pretty good these days. Three. A three-handle. <laughs> we're, we're, we're bellyaching again, again for about our cushy job. Yeah. Cheese will be next. Coming up, phase one of the U.S.-China trade deal might be reaching a close, but hedge fund manager Kyle Bass says there's more to consider than just the economics. I don't understand how Wall Street decouples itself from the national security and human rights perspectives of China. That's next on Squawk Pod. 
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. We're in the B block. This is Squawk Pot. Top American and Chinese negotiators are signing phase one of a trade deal today in Washington. Just a few hours ahead of that official signing, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin joined Joe, Becky, and Andrew on air to discuss this iteration of the deal and what may or may not be coming in phase two. I think it's a very significant deal. It's the first time we've ever had an encompassing agreement with China on all these issues. It deals with intellectual property, forced technology transfer, deals with agriculture, structural issues, financial services, currency purchases, and a fully enforceable uh, agreement. So there's a dispute mechanism in phase two. Uh, there will be additional rollback. So it's really just a question of, and we've said before, phase two may be 2A, 2B, 2C. We'll see. First step is really focusing on enforcement. But this gives China a a big incentive to get back to the table and, and agree to the additional issues that are still unresolved. That live interview lasted over 15 minutes. But here on the podcast, we've distilled the highlights and the analysis from two well-versed guests. The first, Steve Bannon, former White House insider. You know him already, I'm sure. The second is Kyle Bass, hedge fund manager and founder of Heyman Capital Management. He's known on Wall Street for his prescient bets against subprime mortgages during the 2008 financial crisis. But more relevant to today's discussion, he's been a very vocal China critic. In that regard, not unlike his counterpart today, Steve Bannon. The two men digested Secretary Mnuchin's comments, but like most of the segments on Squawk Box and, by extension, Squawk Pod, they covered a lot more. Here's Joe kicking off the conversation with a question to Kyle Bass. What do you make of uh, Secretary Mnuchin's comments that, uh, that you just heard? And then we'll get to Steve Bannon. You know, look, from my perspective, I think what, what this deal is, it's a detente, right? This is a, this is a temporary truce and a, and a decoupling between the U.S. and China. I know it's billed as uh, looking like we're bringing uh, the sides together, but China in the end gave in to pretty significant concessions. And uh, the U.S.'s position where we said we're going to leave tariffs in place through the end of the year was something China just had to swallow because they had both announced that they were going to sign this on the 15th. So no matter what was announced, they were going to have to sign it today. The bigger issues, I think, that are that are involved here. This is a really simple deal. What we're signing here is China's desperately short food and energy, and they have to buy it from somewhere in the world. And uh, what we did is get them to buy it from us. What I think is particularly significant about the deal, I haven't read the deal yet, but uh, going over what's reported, is now this is measurable and enforceable, and we're going to hold the Chinese to it. And that's the first time anyone's ever been able to get the Chinese to sign a deal that's measurable and enforceable. So I think that's particularly important. What they're buying from us is is insignificant from my perspective. And I, and I think this buys time for President Trump into the November elections. And it buys uh, Xi 
the time he needs to uh, become more self-reliant and not rely on the U.S. for a number of things. So I, I think this just buys both sides time, and they can both bill it as a win. But, Kyle, that, that is not consensus, Steve, that, that we actually got something. I think what we're really hearing is that you know, we went through a lot of machinations to get very little just to end the truce. I, could, I couldn't disagree more. Here's why. I, you, you agree with Kyle? Now, here's what I, I even more than Kyle. I, I think Kyle downplays it. I think that what you're seeing in this signing today, coupled with USMCA being done in the same week, hopefully, where USMCA makes North America and Mexico the, a geostrategic manufacturing alternative to East Asia. Today, you're seeing what President Trump's going to do is the beginning of the end of the managed decline of the United States. Kyle's right. It was his tariffs. He went against all orthodoxy, economic orthodoxy, and was land blasted by the by, by you know people came on this show, the financial press, the Wall Street Journal op-ed page. He stood up for the tariffs and he broke the Chinese Communist Party. They had we gave up very little at the end. We gave up some potential tariffs in the back end to start the beginning of of working not totally on forced technology transfers, on intellectual property, on getting access financially to their markets, but most importantly to show. And you've got look. Uh, EU, Japan, ourselves talking about the, the state-owned industries at the WTO yesterday with the EU. You're, you're seeing Trump in a geostrategic context go after China as trying to be a hegemon in the Eurasian landmass. This deal today, this is why she's not here to sign it. This is why the state-owned media in China is not talking about it. The hawks over there don't want to talk about this. This is a huge win for President Trump. This stops, and, and think about it. Steve Mnuchin sounded like invasion of the body snatcher. I thought it was Peter Navarro talking about the, about the tariffs. Last night on the stage of the Democratic Party, I really didn't see many people disagree with his trade policy. Donald Trump has changed the entire center of gravity of the way even the elites have to think about China. Steve, you're okay with the tariffs getting rolled back in some instances, not put on in other places. Uh, you're okay with a lot of the things that we thought we'd get immediately put in? Because I, I, I will say, I, I thought Peter Navarro might have wanted it to go even a step further and, and quite a bit further. Uh, yeah, listen, yes. The, the, yes, Navarro, Lighthizer, you know, what they call the Kyle Bass band and Superhawks, absolutely. But what we have in place is Damocles' sword, right? And, and, and people should, I think today when you see, when, I think when you see the terrorists, when you see today, I think when this thing comes out on the enforcement mechanism, they've got some happy talking about bilateral assessment. Mm -hmm. This enforcement mechanism that I think Lionheiser got in there for the president, I think the president demanded, Donald Trump is judge, jury, and executioner on this, okay? If he thinks, and remember, his big thing is no games. If he thinks there's games being played, just come back. Unilaterally, he, unilaterally, he doesn't have to go to WTO, he doesn't have to do anything. Bang, they're on. And so that's Damocles' sword. We're gonna, he's going to give them a chance to try to see if they will actually live up to a commitment, not like they stiffed Obama and Biden in the, in the Rose Garden with the cybersecurity and the militarization of South China Sea, not like they lied on the Paris Accord and now they've got a half a trillion dollars of coal-fired plants, not like they lied on Hong Kong. They, the Chinese Communist Party has lied to every institution in the world about what they're going to do. Donald Trump has finally set up a mechanism to hold them with transparency, accountability, and enforceability to hold them to hold them to account in front of the entire world. And that's why this is so important. This begins the end of the managed decline of the elites in this country. And this is Donald Trump and his tariffs. Kyle, do you anything that that uh, that Steve Bannon just said that, that you think is, is that you disagree with or, or is it is does no. it take it even further than than where, where you were? Yeah, I mean, I look, I agree. I agree with almost everything that Steve's saying. Make two points. One is on on the sanctions that the U.S. is supposedly 
engaging in, where we're sanctioning Chinese entities as far as uh, their relationship with uh, Iran. You know, one thing that Secretary Mnuchin's not doing is we know the Chinese buy the most oil from Iran. We know the ships and shipping companies they use. But to fund the purchases, they use Chinese SOE banks. We know which banks they're using. <laughs> Our Treasury should be sanctioning Chinese banks today. That's something we haven't been willing to do. It's something Trump hasn't been willing to do. We talk like we're going to sanction companies that, that, are, that are contravening our uh, sanctions on Iran, and we're not doing that. But I think more importantly, Becky hit on something when she was talking to Mnuchin that I think is worthy of, of our discussion, and it's whether or not we should talk about human rights in the same context or same conversation as the economic or national security concerns. Senator Rick Scott from Florida, he's not happy with this. He's been a big China hawk for a long time. His point is he thinks human rights should get wrapped into these talks. What do you, what do you say to him? Is that likely to happen in phase two? Uh, on this issue, I would just say you have to negotiate different pieces at different times. Th this was an economic negotiation. There are also discussions that we're having with them on national security issues. We've had discussions with them on Iran and our expectations that they'll comply with Iran sanctions. I know we've had discussions on humanitarian issues, and we'll continue to have discussions with them on defense issues in the South China Sea. So th this is a complicated relationship, and there are a lot of issues to address. But is it fair to assume that in the future, the human rights aspect will not get wrapped into the economic talks, that that will say, stay on a separate track with security issues that you're negotiating in a different frame? Th that is correct. You know, I don't know how many of you have read the Chinatribunal.com, that the, the, the tribunal that Sir Jeffrey Neese ran in the UK on live organ harvesting practices of political prisoners in China. But China is arguably committing the largest crimes against humanity uh, of anyone in the 21st century. And yet we can't wait to sign another economic deal with this evil regime. And I don't understand how Wall Street decouples itself from the national security and human rights perspectives of China. And that's, I think that's something that should be discussed first, not second or third or put away and, and uh, let us read it another day. This is something that's enormous and it's not being discussed. And so I'd love, I'd love to hear uh, uh, Steve's it's view here. on that Steve as well is, as, uh, as Becky's. Uh, He's ready. Faces. Yeah, listen, it, it, the, the Wall Street elites and the corporatists have looked the other way in China. There's no doubt. But let's talk about, remember, President Trump, this is, this is across the board. We have a whole of government approach and confrontation with the economic war that China's been running on us for 25 years, right? That's what the centerpiece of this agreement is. But in addition, look at what's happening. Look in Hong Kong, okay, the, the revolt against the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party in Hong Kong. Look at the proxy in Taiwan that last week, the, la the landslide victory, and the landslide victory a couple months ago in Hong Kong also. Look at in Tehran, in Beirut, in Baghdad, in Tehran, they're in the streets supporting Americans. I mean, they won't walk in the American flag in Tehran. This is all the Trump program. People understand he's choking down the Chinese Communist Party. He's choking down their allies like in Tehran. And I think this is a whole cloth, even on Huawei. See, I think the way Trump looks at this, they're not separate. But, they're actually but I, was, all together. I would say, should they be on separate tracks or should this all be combined? Should you be able to come up with economic agreements and say, okay, we're not going to deal with the Huawei's, we're not going to deal with the Uyghurs, we're not going to deal with Hong Kong rights, democracy rights? The way they want to break it down was that, hey, the 40 40 20, they're in different buckets. But I think the way, if you look at the way Trump is doing it, even with Apple, Trump, and really at a strategic level, it's all happening at one time. Remember, when he first came in as president, 
our government had this kind of the pivot to Asia was kind of hit or miss. It was all over. He now has, if you look at Pence's and Pompeo's speeches, we have a whole of government. We're patrolling the South China Sea and the Straits of Taiwan, uh, the Straits of Taiwan again. We're confronting Matt Pottinger is in London to convince the British government that they can't go with Huawei. Rubio is now talking about actually having some sort of billion dollar fund. You have the entire government and the shake. I agree with uh, with the Kyle. It's been outrageous what Wall Street and the corporatists have looked the other way on China. But now all these things are coming together and Trump's leadership on getting the that's, economic. That's almost right. an argument that we shouldn't have a phase one economic agreement. No, no, no. I, no. I think, I think that because I think the phase one agreement starts. At, listen, what we don't want. We have an information war going on and a cyber war, and we have an economic war they've been running us. What we don't want is to have this devolve to a kinetic war, okay? This is to make sure that, and this is a hot war economically and a hot war on, on cyber and, and information. We don't want it to devolve to the other. And that is why Trump, I think, is being a statesman so and trying to do these and trying to do these and do these in segments, right? But they're all of one piece. Walk us through, then, the permutations with, with which you get to that second phase of a deal in terms of how you get to the intellectual property. I think, I think, how, how, I mean, Secretary Mnuchin says that, that Huawei is not a chess piece. I, I think you probably differ. I also disagree with, I respectfully disagree. I think it's not part of the Chinese government. It's the front of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. It's their telecommunications department. You know, I'm, I'm a much more hawk on Huawei than, uh, than even a lot of the hawks in the administration. I think Huawei is the, uh, is the Trojan horse inside the West of the telecommunications forces the issue? Yes, I think we're definitely going to force the issue. We're going to do it in component parts, and I think we're eventually going to do it on systems and technology. I think Huawei's got to be shut down. Can I ask you a related question? When you think about how the U.S. is treating or thinking about Apple relative to the way you might think that China treats Huawei? I, look, I agree with President Trump. I think Apple's got to, you know, I think, I think they ought to be moving their manufacturing back here. I want to see the supply chain start coming back. But do, I think you, but do you believe it's appropriate for the U.S. government to force Apple to provide a uh, backdoor access to those phones? Yes, 100%. I don't think there's any doubt. That they, that they need to? Yes. And does, but but d wouldn't that be antithetical to the idea of, do you want te our technology companies in the same way that I imagine you, you look at Huawei as an arm of the, the Chinese but government? But that's th different. Well, Apple is a totally independent company. Even if you had a backdoor, Huawei is part of the PLA. That's the difference. It's the telecommunication arms, not of the Chinese government, of the People's Liberation Army. It's to two totally different things. One is about getting access, right? The other is about you actually own the entire system. If you're Tim Cook, given the relationship that he has had with the president, which has been a good relationship for Apple. How do you think it changes in this dynamic, or does it? I think it changes dramatically. I think President Trump is going to really drop the hammer on this. You've weighed in before on, on, on the people that didn't think impeachment was a huge danger to the president. You said you need to, to watch this very carefully, and you need a, a very strong response. You know what's going to come up on Tuesday? Where are we right now, and whether the, the president should, should want witnesses? Where does he stand in the Senate? It's still only nine cents on predicted that the Senate convicts. But would you say there's cracks in his support in the but Senate at this point? Last night with what they're doing, look, they don't have a case. So they're trying to find information everywhere. The nullification project, and they understand, last night on that debate stage, and this is Van Jones saying this, not Steve Bannon, there's no way that debate stage is going to beat Donald Trump. Van Jones said that, okay? 
They're not going to be Trump. They need to defeat Trump some other way, the nullification project. That's what the continual, the permanent, uh, the permanent impeachment party is going to continue on and on and on. If it's not about killing General Soleimani, it's about now Lev Parnas. They're going to continue to find things. That's, to me, the boil's got to be lanced. And the way we lance this is I think you have a full trial. I think you let them have their witnesses. If they want Bolton, if they want Mulvaney, if they want the OMB emails, let's do it. The jury is not the Senate. The jury is the American people, and the audience is the world. That was great, you two. And Kyle, uh, thank you. I'm not going to ask you about impeachment, Kyle, maybe next time. But I do appreciate all your time today. And Steve Bannon, thanks. Thanks, Thanks, great. Next on Squawk Pod, a Pulitzer Prize-winning international journalist has authored a new book inspired by his own hometown, Yamhill, Oregon. Nick Kristoff reflects on America's working class and what might have changed the fate of his childhood classmates. What would have made more difference than anything else is early childhood intervention. We're back in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. All right, Andrew has these stories next. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Hugh Andrew. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. We want to bring in Nick Kristoff, New York Times columnist, who won his first Pulitzer Prize for reporting uh, in Tiananmen Square over 30 years ago. He's now the author of a new book. It's called Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment and uh, really about sort of the forgotten, some of the people who have been considered forgotten in this country. But we're going to get there in just a second. I I did want to get your, your thoughts on this phase one deal and also maybe even in a broader sense, the, the bigger relationship between the U.S. and China and where you see it headed? Sure. I mean, I must say the deal is a little, I mean, at least what we know of it seems to be a little bit better than we might have uh, expected. Um, I do have concerns about how much it'll be implemented. You know, the uh, USTR uh, about a year and a half ago said that China eight times had refused to implement promises about uh, forced technology transfer. I think so it's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, exactly. And so, the, so they made another promise. Promises. So will this be adhered to any more than the previous eight? Um, you know, we don't know, but uh, it's nice to have the, the promises. Right. And also, I think one has to wonder about whether the gains, which I think appear to be real, are worth the upheaval right. of the last couple of years. I, and I guess I also think at the end of the day that probably this year the economic and trade issues will be secondary to security issues right. uh, of Hong Kong and Taiwan, South China Sea, and to issues about, you know, a million Muslims um, interned in Xinjiang. 
which the administration has been increasingly outspoken about. So they're, they're real frictions. What do you and, think the administration should do on that front? I, I think that they simply have to speak out and work with allies and raise the cost uh, to China of interning a million people because of their faith. But given your coverage of the country, do you believe that, that we'll ever be able to get a deal on the, the second phase, the true issues around intellectual property, the true issues around some of these, these I am skeptical. I am skeptical that there will be a real deal on things like state subsidies, on something really substantial on intellectual property. But, I mean, we can, this sort of relates a little to our book, but at the end of the day, I think if we want to increase American competitiveness vis-a-vis China, that's going to have less to do with our intellectual property rules and more to do with the way we invest in human capital here in the U.S. Um, the other issue I wanted to ask you about is that we had the debate last night, um, but I want you to relate the debate maybe to your book and to, to the economy in terms of thinking about uh, the, the economic tightrope that you talk about in the book where you really highlight and talk uh, about this community that you grew up in. Um, we can talk about that. But the question I had is, are there any of the, of the Democratic candidates that are out there, who do you think is actually speaking to the people that, that, that you write about in your book? Well... So I think there is a lot of ambivalence among the people I speak to because many of them identify as social conservatives and even to some degree as as economic conservatives. But Bernie Sanders (laughs) speaks in a populist way about the working class. The other candidates talk about the middle class. Um, Bernie Sanders talks about the working class in a way that I think... And that's really what tightrope is about. So work, what you consider the, the genuine working class. That's, that's right. Behind. You know, it's typically defined as those who don't have a college degree. Right. Huge, huge chunk of, of America and have been uh, dramatically left behind. But I think there's deep suspicion of him in the white working class for other reasons. On the other hand, the kind of populist appeals, the talk about uh, increasing labor representation, uh, higher pay, that resonates. Right. Um, you know, the the... the uh, minimum wage, the federal minimum wage of 1968, if it had kept pace with inflation and productivity, would now be more than $22 an hour. And people have felt that across the country. Right. Um, how do you square the idea of what's happened to the, the, the working class, if you will, at the same time that we now have what feels like historic low unemployment? Um, so the people in my hometown, you know, Obviously, there are more jobs nationwide uh, available than there are people who can fill them. But there are so many people who are deeply wounded because who aren't available, and it's partly because of lack of investment in human capital. So they don't have the education, they they don't have the background. But also, you know, half of prime age men who are dropped out of the labor force take a pain pill every day, and so yeah, we've got. I mean, we have a broader problem than just the labor market. We have a problem with a huge part of the American demographic. Um, Denmark, and that, that tends to happen where you, when you have huge social changes, when you have economic unrest, it does seem to happen to one demographic, and that demographic often doesn't get picked back up when the rest of it comes. But it's striking that these are global changes, and yet this has happened just in the U.S. So in Denmark, McDonald's pays almost $20 an hour as a minimum wage, and it's not because, uh, I mean, not as a, as a legally required minimum wage, as a market-clearing wage, but the reason it can do that is that a low-end member of the 
labor force in Denmark is a high school graduate who is literate, who is numerate, who does not have any dependency, who is actually highly productive, while somebody at the low end of the U.S. labor market is not a high school graduate, is maybe only borderline literate and numerate, and may well have, you know, mental health issues, dependency issues, may well have a driver's license suspended uh, because of court fees so they can't commute regularly. Um, We need to do more to also invest in the labor force itself. And so what would you do? And you talk about this in the book, at the end of the book, some of your suggestions. What's the answer? So when I look back at the kids on my school bus, who a quarter of whom are now dead, what would have made more difference than anything else is early childhood interventions. That's the moment when we could have got them on track so they could have competed at school, they could have found, uh, they, they could have overcome some other disadvantages that they had. And every study finds that's just the highest return investment we have in the country. Okay. Uh, did, you, did you read Hillbilly? LLJ? Yeah, absolutely. So, a, lot of, a lot of parallels with my hometown. And since the book came, so my town is rural Oregon. So many people have come up to me and said, oh, I grew up in Maine. I grew up in Tennessee. I grew up in Texas. And my town's just like yours. Can I call you a hillbilly? Or is that probably you, not? You the, can. Nick Christoph, the <laughs> hillbilly? No? You can. That's my hometown, actually. It's right north of Cincinnati. Oh, is that right? It's hillbilly elegy. Yeah. I say a lot of the same type of I take a couple of Advil every morning, but that's just... Uh, <laughs> That's well, just, that's just me. It's not. of America is now not divided between like west, east, south, north. It's thriving America and left behind America, right. often right next to each other. Right. Uh, the book is called Tightrope. Thank you for Thank you for coming in this morning. Good to be with you. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod. It's free and it's available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear or have requests and suggestions, please rate and comment or tweet at us at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.